Barbara. Gentlemen. Ah, good. This is District Attorney Harvey D Bats? Dent? Okay. What's happened? Johnny Vitti was murdered tonight. Damn it! The Roman's nephew. He has a name. It's Carmine Falcone, not the Roman. Harvey, calm down. Where were your men, Jim? I've been working on Vitti for months. Nobody on your team thought he'd be vulnerable the night before he's gonna turn state's evidence? 22 caliber. Taped handle. Serial number filed off. Baby bottle nipple for a silencer. Odd, but effective. And untraceable. Hard to tell if we're dealing with a professional. Of course it was a professional! This was Falcone! He found out Vidi was gonna betray the family, so he took him off the board! Maybe. We were so close. We were so close, Jim. He was ready to sing. And not just about Carmine, the whole family was going away. We had a real opportunity to change things. We still do. It's just a setback. We'll find another way to take down Falcone. Together. Where's the jack-o'-lantern? Hey, excuse me? You think it's important? I don't know yet. Look, Harvey's right. This city's finally got a chance. And it's the three men standing here, right now. The Falcone crime family has to be taken down. So I'm putting you two together. District Attorney Dent will work in the light, and you... will work the other side. Bend the rules, but never break them. And I'll do everything I can to protect you both. Understood. He needs to hear you say it, Bats. Two heads are better than one. Leads come my way pretty fast. Keep your ears open. Then I guess we're up and... running. He does that a lot. I just... And I'm talking to myself. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine. And today I'm welcoming a new guest to this show, although if you're a Patreon subscriber, you would have already heard him on that, and that is Frankie Camposano. Frankie, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well, Perry, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Check out the Patreon episode if you want to hear us really dig into the Long Halloween comic. It's a great chat. Absolutely, yeah. It was a lot of fun uh, talking about that with you. Um, but since we've got a lot of listeners who haven't gotten that message yet, <laughs> hint, hint, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to them? Yeah, I am a uh, screenwriter, um, comedian, filmmaker. Uh, by night and by day, I work in corporate recruiting in the entertainment industry uh, here in Los Angeles. Lifelong Batman fan. Uh, that was kind of my entry point into the broader genre uh, material, whether that's comics, movies, games, books, TV series. Uh, I like a little bit of everything. I like to make a little bit of everything. So what was it that actually got you first interested in uh, Batman as kind of like your gateway into it? So Batman for me is just uh, I, the iconography of the character in the world. Uh, 
I've, I've had a, a love and affinity for for as far back as I can remember. Uh, as a kid, I remember growing up on that. Obviously, I'm not, I didn't watch the 66 series as it aired. I'm, I'm a bit too young for that. But it was probably, that was probably the first way I was introduced to Batman through the Adam West series. And um, before I could really speak as a kid and say Batman, I called him Nana Nana, just like the start <laughs> of the, the theme song. Um and from there, I found um, the Michael Keaton films, Batman, the animated series, of course. Um, we're recording this the day after the passing of Kevin Conroy. So just got to give a shout out to my Batman. Uh, he was one of the greatest to ever do it. Uh, his work, not just for comic books or superhero fare, um, just as an actor, as a performer, he casts a long shadow. That is the Batman that I hear when I read these books. Uh, that is the Batman I'm comparing the performers to when it's a different casting. Um, so that was my Batman. Uh, and a lot of folks, uh, professionals, fans, the, the outpouring of love shows that he was a lot. He was Batman for a, a really a full generation. Um, and of course, the Arkham games, even folks who've never seen the animated series, there's a good chance that that's uh, their entry point into the franchise beyond uh, movies. And so, yeah, I, I grew up with the character from the animated series and Kevin Conroy. I found then Teen Titans, Justice League. Uh, that really pushed me into mainstream comics. And then uh, shortly after that was The Dark Knight, another huge kind of Batman cultural moment. Right. Um, and then, of course, now again with the Robert Pattinson one. It's like every few years there's another huge thing that really kind of, you know, I could I can track what I was doing in my life and who I was at the time with what was going on uh, in the Batman world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think I would say Conroy more than one generation because yeah. um, my late co-host, right? He was, you know, he was from a completely different generation. He was of the, the pretty sure he was of the Boomer generation, if not early Gen X. But um, he was someone who also like when he read Batman comics, he heard Kevin Conroy's voice. And, and like you said, because of the Arkham games, <clears throat> you know, probably um, for a lot of younger millennials or Gen Z, like Kevin Conroy is still their Batman because that's their impression of him. Um, for me, I think I'd had a similar Batman story to you. I can't remember which came first, if it was the 89 series or if it was the Adam West series. Uh, so I was born in 83, so I don't remember the first time I had been exposed to Batman, just like Superman. Like it's, it happened before my memory begins. So like those two characters have always existed in my memory. Um, but yeah, it was funny. Um, and I had mentioned this on the show one episode, probably a few years ago where it, it always made me laugh how executives were worried about how, Oh, how can we have, a Batman over here played by this actor and a Batman over here played by this actor. And won't audiences be confused? And I remember me being as like, you know, five years old, I'm like, Oh, cool. There's this really campy over the top, uh, Batman on TV dressed in a, in a bright, colorful satiny costume. And then there's this really dark, you know, Gothic Batman in the movies in a rubber suit. And I had no problem reconciling those two things in my mind as a five-year-old, but you know, executives in their infinite wisdom thought it would be too confusing for for uh, for adults. And now, of course, that's all anyone wants. Mm -hmm. You know, even we it's the number of versions of Batman that we've seen on the screen in the past few years is so unprecedented. Even oh, in yeah. 
like le- smaller roles in like the live action series. Even Kevin Conroy got to play a live action Bruce Wayne in the Arrowverse. Like, that's yes, yeah, something I never would have thought would have happened. And then we had, um, you know, on uh, Titans, we had um, I'm blanking on his name, but he had a really interesting interpretation of Bruce yeah. Wayne, where it was kind of like this bizarre kind of cross. Speaking of, you know, the Adam West and Michael Keaton Batman, his Batman was almost kind of like a mix of those two in some ways. Yeah, definitely a return to the darker Batman who's kind of his years are weighing on him in a way that is by just the nature of Titans being a different show than like Mm -hmm. the Zack Snyder stuff is is darker is that kind of almost a grim dark Batman without the brutality because he's not that type of physical build. Yeah. Yeah, but he's also got like a bit of the Adam West charm, which I thought was a really yeah. interesting thing. And I remember the the one of my favorite moments from Titans was in season two when um, Dick is hallucinating that he's seeing Bruce and um, and the actor I can't remember his, his name it's driving it's gonna drive me nuts, but he was doing the Batuzzi on stage with the dancers. I I love the fact that we can have a show like Titans and mm-hmm. it's so different. Like it, it's a great example of a show that has tried a lot of different things. Um, your mileage may vary on it kind of veering into more of a, a bat verse show, but mm-hmm. for me, that's fine. If, if that is kind of the, the way to, to back into something like that and see uh, a superhero version of Gotham on the television series, especially from the hero's perspective, because I, I, uh, I can appreciate the, the Gotham proper TV show, but severe lack of the characters that you're, there to to Uh see you know it really is it is the rogues show and the gcpd which sure but they exist to prop up these the costumed heroes that we're all here for gotham i was a little bit less invested in but titans has been interesting because it's i think it does something that i think the snyder films fail to do whereas it it gives us you know this dark interpretation of these characters but it still feels pretty true to those characters where i felt like the snyder stuff was just dark visions of these characters, but it didn't really care about where those characters came from. Very much so. And I, I think that there's something nice in the Titans series in terms of they're not just catering to the diehards. They're willing to take uh-huh. swings to bring in a broader audience. And sometimes that might ruffle the feathers of comic fans. There's right. changes that they've made that even I'm like, okay, I'll roll my eyes at. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I get that those changes aren't there for me. You know, mm-hmm. they know they know I'm in the door already, and I get to see characters uh, that have never had a live action version before. And if this is the the way that they can make the jump and, and maybe one day be in the movies, I'm all for it. Yeah, and you know, I just got to give a shout out to that actor who plays um, Robin or Dick Grayson now, Nightwing, Brendan Thwaites. He is just like I. He is like the perfect depiction of what I think of as Dick Grayson uh, in live action. A depiction I never thought we'd get because, you know, we got we got Burt Ward, who's very much like the young, over-enthusiastic, you know, Robin. And then we got Chris O'Donnell, who was oddly like a, a petulant child, even though he was like 35. <laughs> um, and then we had, you know, um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was playing kind of a Dick Grayson character, but, you know, kind more of a composite of all the different Robins. And so it's really nice to see this depiction of of, of Dick on screen, because he's outside of Batman and Superman. He's my favorite of the DC characters. Oh, for sure. And I was asked recently, actually, in a in a I'll just say it in a job interview mm-hmm. uh, where I was asked, um, what superhero would you be? And without hesitation, it was Robin. 
Like, mm-hmm. of course, everybody wants to be Dick Grayson. You want to be right there at the center of the action, but not weighed down by the the reality and the horrors of what what this world might be like. It's mm-hmm. it's never stops being fun for him, even exactly. in his darkest hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway, you know, all of that is to well, let's transition to something else first. And I want lately I've been asking guests what kind of thing is like kind of grabbing your attention lately. What are you really kind of interested in? You know, it can be geek wise or doesn't have to be. Lately, I've been really drawn to stories that are kind of 15 minutes in the future, we'll say. Like stories where there's kind of one um, sci-fi conceit that then the rest of the story kind of derives from. If this, then Mm -hmm. here's the story. Um, Examples would be Duel, the Riley Stearns film starring Karen Gillan uh, that came out earlier this year. It is on... I think AMC plus. Oh, I've never uh, heard of a, that. I have it uh, because all the IFC shows went there and I'm a huge comedy bang bang fan. And I <laughs> just wanted to be able to have access to it and just run through those episodes all the time, uh, which led me to <laughs> AMC plus. Um, but they also had duel, which is a fantastic film. Uh, I didn't have the chance to catch it in theaters, but I saw it streaming. The, the premise is that Karen Gillan is a woman who is depressed uh, before she finds out she has a terminal illness. And then um, she, in this world, can raise a clone and kind of spend a few months with this clone of her and, and imprint on the clone to then basically fill in for her once she's passed so that her friends and family don't have to grieve or face the reality of her loss. It's a really dark, bleak kind of sci-fi comedy, really. Um, and so she trains this clone, her replacement, and then finds out she's not dying. And in this world, when a clone exists and it's not going to replace you, you have one year until you fight to the death. And whoever wins then gets to resume the life. So the film itself is about her preparing for this fight and having to... Uh, this woman who was previously, you know... Uh, had little will to live prior to her diagnosis now has this visceral, like ready to fight um, mentality and has to train. And she's facing, uh, you know, a a mirror image of her, a doppelganger. Um, It's so dark and fun and, and really uh, takes some turns that you might not expect. Um, It's great. I'm going to have to see if I can find that because I don't have the AMC channel, but um, some of the stuff that gets on some of the smaller streaming services in the U.S., <clears throat> they'll usually end up on like one of the bigger streamers in Japan, like on on Netflix or on Amazon Prime. So I'm I just looked it up. It's not in the <clears throat> it's not in any of the rental stores around here, but I'm going to have to um, see if I can find it on one of those streamers. It's really quirky. Um, if you're a fan of Yorgos Lanthimos films like The Lobster or Killing of a Sacred Deer, um Riley Stearns is clearly a fan of Yorgos Lanthimos as well and is is channeling that kind of stilted dialogue and, and um, off-kilter, unnerving tone mm-hmm. that, that Yorgos Lanthimos really nails in his films. And it's really clearly present in this, and it's a conscious effort on Riley Stearns' part because his previous film, uh, The Art of Self-Defense, um, starring Jesse Eisenberg, another great film, far more grounded in reality. There's no sci-fi concepts going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a little bit more uh, casual in tone, uh, colloquial kind of in a way that this film is not. Mm-hmm. Duel is very precise in its structure and tone in a way that uh, really it toes the line perfectly between horror and comedy, not in the way that most horror comedies do. It's, mm-hmm. it's not really a 
a satire. It's not uh, goofy. It's you don't know whether to laugh or not because the things that are being said are often so absurd and the characters are, are in deadly serious situations. In a way that kind of reminds me of, um, do you ever see Ichi the Killer? Yeah. It has it, kind of remind what you're describing there. It kind of reminds me of the same feeling I felt watching Ichi the Killer where it has this idea where it, it kind of, it, it, it goes so over the top in some scenes that it makes you laugh. And like it, it immediately switches to something that's so hardcore and, you know, and painful to watch that it almost punishes you for laughing. Yes. One of the things that Duel really nails is that the emotional landscape of the film, and, and in a way, you know, in all films, it's kind of tied to that protagonist. How they're feeling is, is your indicator to how you should be feeling. And Karen Gillan is so good in her dual roles in the film that there are moments where her reaction is is almost leaving you kind of stranded because you're like, I feel a very clear type of way about what's happening to this character. Why doesn't she is why isn't she showing this? And her character kind of directly interrogates that over the course of the film, like which she gets her diagnosis and she's just like, Why don't I feel sad? Mm-hmm. And that's heavy. That's a tough place for her to be in at the start of this movie. And um it's it's a challenging watch, I think. Uh, in some ways, it's not exactly what you might think it is based on fulfilling the promise of the premise, but it's such a good journey. She's fantastic in it. Um, Aaron Paul plays her trainer, and he's great in it. He's a scene stealer. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that up because I've seen her. I've only seen her in a few different things, but it it amazes me how, like, you just look comparing like her probably what she's both most well known for like the Jumanji movies and guardians of the galaxy, just how vastly different her performances are in those two, in those two movies. And it's like, if you didn't realize that was Karen Gillan, right. You know, even makeup aside, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily realize that, that was the same actress. And both of those characters are totally different than mm-hmm. uh, Amy Pond and Dr. Who, which mm-hmm. is, you know, her, her breakout role, um, a role that, you know, a lot of Dr. Who performers kind of, can be uh, typecast as, as the character that they portray on that show, or even broadly, you know, that type of character or thing. And she went so far in the other direction with Nebula and then with her Jumanji character. Mm. She's, she's a really fantastic performer. And in Duel, she plays two different versions of the same character. Um, one, the lived in version, and one, um, this... F- kind of like a failed imprint she's not exactly a perfect doppelganger and that's part of the problem mm-hmm. it's a complication in the story uh and it's she's just really really good I'd, I'd say the film does her a slight disservice in having her do an american accent um because everyone around her is i believe with the with a couple exceptions a lot of the other characters are british and she's scottish so she could just have done her regular accent just fine and instead she's putting on an american accent and there are a couple times where it, it kind of throws you for a loop Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the thing I'm kind of into lately is um, I've been rereading the uh, the Superman Rebirth comics that uh, Dan Jurgens and um, uh, Pat uh, was it um, Tomasi uh, Tomasi Peter Tomasi I was trying to remember his first name I kept thinking Patrick uh, yeah and Peter Patrick Gleason did the art on, was this yeah. co writer on it um, so yeah that Jurgens uh, Tomasi and Gleason worked on and so I just I've been rereading those lately and it's been fun going back to that era, you know, before we got the Bendis stuff and just like, man, I wish we could have seen this stuff continue. I I love that era. It's, it's 
for me, it was kind of the moment that I hopped back on mainstream Superman books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious, Perry, how is the action comic side of it, the Dan Jurgen stuff? Because I have the Tomasi and Gleason stuff um, in the deluxe editions. They're beautiful. And I've I've always had my eye on those other three, the action comics ones. Worth it? I think, oh, they're definitely worth it. Um, I think if you're comparing it to Jurgen's you know, earlier stuff on Superman, like the the stuff he did, like the Death of Superman era and all that. Um, I think that stuff might be a little bit stronger. Because um, I think when I was, when when they announced this, I was so excited for the Jurgen stuff, more so than the, because I didn't really, I'm, I wasn't very familiar with Tomasi at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So I was much more interested in the, um, in the Jurgen side of things, but I read them both. And I found myself liking the Tomasi and Gleason stuff a lot more because I think he focused a lot more on the um, Tomasi. I think focused a lot more on the on the family dynamics between uh, Clark, Lois, and John, whereas uh, Jurgens focused more on like the 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 bigger world type stuff. Um, yeah. For the most part, I think I prefer the the Tomasi stuff, especially because. Jurgens had the unfortunate role of having to do the Oz effect, which was not a very good story. And I hate that it, they brought back, you know, I'm not sure if you've read it, but you know about the Miss Doc. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So I'm not spoiling anything then. Um, yeah. I hated that they brought back Jor-El. I kept waiting for a turn and there and be like, like, Oh no, it's not really Jor-El or like he's Jor-El from an alternate universe or something. And that turn never came. That annoyed the crap out of me. Yeah, that uh, I I didn't love that storyline. It also spilled over into Detective Comics, where it's part of Tim Drake's death, and then mm-hmm. his the fake out is that you know Oz Jor El has has kidnapped him for essentially no reason. It doesn't ever have anything to do with Doomsday Clock or any of the stuff that they were teasing. Yeah, and then Tim is just kind of unceremoniously back at one point, um, and it felt to me a little bit like an editorial mandate mm-hmm. uh, because it parallels the. I'd say still not very effective, but slightly more effective use of the flashpoint Thomas Wayne in mm-hmm. Batman at the time. Like those two parallels, the father's coming back and they're different. And I was like, all right, I, I, thematically it's interesting that these things are happening at the same time, but then the opportunity to connect them in any way or, or do anything with those, uh, with both those characters never really felt like it was a payoff. It, that it was like- really yeah, that's that's the part that really got me. I'm like, if if you're gonna parallel the the Flashpoint Thomas Wayne thing, I'm fine with that. Just like I'm fine with Flashpoint Thomas Wayne coming in, but you should only first you should only do it for one story, not have it be a much bigger yeah. thing. And like they did, like I I thought when Tom King brought him in, that was kind of pushing things too far. As much as I did love Tom King's run, that was one thing I didn't like about his Batman. Um, but also, you know, don't mess with the established Jor El and Thomas Wayne bring in the Jor-El from Flashpoint or something like that. I think that would have made a whole lot more sense, especially given what Flashpoint did to Superman, right? I think that version of Thomas Wayne would make so much more sense being like this Mr. Oz character. Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a missed opportunity. And and I do think there are some things about some of these characters that not necessarily should be sacred, but like leave it alone. There's not enough. There's no reason to have this be the the canon actual Jor-El and maybe, you know, if anyone wants a free retcon, make that mm-hmm. the Ultraman Jor-El, you know, you already yeah. have Ultraman messing with John, just, you know, there's no reason to, to sully a character's legacy yeah. by taking yeah. it from being like unequivocally good and heroic and, and sacrificial and just making him a jerk. 
I always kind of, yeah, I always kind of clench up now whenever they announce that we're exploring an aspect of the origin that's never been explored before because it almost invariably turns out very bad. Yeah, like I, to bring it back to Batman, I was loving Chip Zdarsky's run on um, Batman the Night, filling in that gap prior to year one where it is not just a montage of Bruce going around the world and training with, with all these different masters of different disciplines, but a story. You mm-hmm. see him changing from you know, young adult orphan into young adult hero. Uh, and I was fine with directly tying in Ghostmaker and, and filling that in because that, that elevates that character beyond, mm-hmm. you know, kind of similar to Tommy Elliott coming in as just like a friend who we've never heard before. Okay, right. sure. So doing that story where we get to see that friendship totally worked for me. That was fine. But then bringing in Ra's al Ghul and Talia and, and really retconning a, a ton of, of Denny O'Neill's work was to me just such a, a missed opportunity to have this be a, a firmly canon you know story that stands the test of time and instead now it's one of those where you kind of have to pick and choose when mm-hmm. when does bruce meet Roz and learn about the league of assassins and all of that and i'm sure there was ways to kind of reconcile those two things but it was interesting to have a villain that very directly is like i could have stayed out of your life and i came in because i'm interested in in what you're doing as batman not this version where he meets mm-hmm. him and he's like a chosen one essentially yeah yeah i'll have to check that out because um i haven't read that series yet but i i love chip zardsky's work on um uh, uh daredevil so I, yeah i'll have to check out that stuff too even despite the, the changes despite that um <clears throat> but anyway that's a nice little transition to what we're talking about today because we are talking about a story from batman's early years and uh we're you know when you were on the Patreon show, we talked about the comic book, The Long Halloween, which, you know, both of us love, both of us thought was like, if not the greatest Batman story, then at least one of the greatest Batman stories. Um, and both of us, you know, kind of ended on this idea that if you're if you're going to introduce someone to Batman, you should do it with this story. Uh, today, we're talking about the movie, um, parts one and two of the animated movie, which I'm... I, I'm going to, this one, I would not say give to someone if this is their first impression of Batman. Um, but but let we're going to dive into it. Uh, so let's kind of start with, I want to start with the cast, because I think the casting is one of the things that this movie nails really well. I mean, Jensen Ackles, I'm, I'm a huge Supernatural fan. I loved it all 15 seasons. Uh, and I thought even at the moments when they were getting into the absurd territory, I thought that they had a nice way of acknowledging that they were getting into absurd territory. So I liked like the self-referential humor. I liked how both the actors, Ackles and Jared Padalecki, seemed like they were still having fun doing it all 15 years. It never seemed like they were getting tired of doing it, even though they mocked that idea when they did like the some of the meta episodes. So it felt like, you know, these two guys really enjoyed what they were doing, you know, behind behind the scenes. And sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and uh, I think Jensen Ackles has also played Jason Todd. And yeah, he's under the red really road, yeah. a huge fan of, of these characters, and he's great in the role. Yeah, that and that was another thing I was going to mention, too, because it, it's it's really interesting to see how he's played played Batman and how, you know, several years back he played Jason Todd. And he knocked it out of the park both times. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, I'm thinking of comparing him to some of the other voice actors that have done Batman because nobody's going to touch Conroy. 
just like nobody's going to touch Christopher Reeve Superman, right? It's just they they are on a completely different level. But when you're looking at like the the other voice actors that have taken on this role, Ackles is pretty far up there. Like he's got that deep gravelly voice and he can also do like the lighter stuff as Bruce Wayne. You know, I mean, he did this for 15 years on Supernatural. He played Dean, you know, both like the very hard edge of Dean Winchester, but then he also had a lot of, you know, funny, charming moments as him too. So he can easily transition between those two. And, and yeah, I thought he, he did an amazing job. In fact, I mean, you know, I mean, all, all due respect to Robert Pattinson. I think he's great, but I kind of think we, we missed out on something by not seeing Jensen Ackles play a live action Batman. Wow. That's actually a really good casting. And yeah, I, I'd be very interested, even if it was, um, you know, in a, in a television series, I think it'd mm-hmm. be a great fit for him. Um, yeah, I, I, there's the casting is really fantastic in this, in this film. And we'd be remiss not to mention, uh, it was Naya Rivera's last role as Catwoman. Yeah. Um, she's really great in it. She's got great chemistry with Ackles. Uh, I, I, my, I don't know about you, Perry. My hit or miss casting in this is Josh Dumal as Two Face, Harvey Dent. Okay, he just feels like he's in a little bit of a of a different movie than some of the other characters. Um, I, I think it's, I like him. I feel like he was cast because he could do the Two Face part, mm-hmm. and his heart and his Harvey Dent was incidental. You have to play Harvey because you're going to play Two Face, uh, and I don't know. I could take it or leave it. I thought he mostly did a pretty good job. I think at, at moments before the transformation, like especially in part one, I think there were moments when he he got a little too over the top. Um, I will give you that. But yeah, overall, I'm of part one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can, I can definitely see that. Um, overall, I liked him, though. I mean, it it's clear that he's doing a Richard Mole impression from Batman the Animated Series. In fact, I had to double check and see who it was. Um, also, you know, along that line you know troy baker who i believe he also did didn't he also do joker in um arkham origins i think so yeah okay yeah so he's he does the same thing where you know he does this kind of mark hamill impersonation as the joker which mostly works i think there are a few moments when i'm just like wait you kind of sound like mark hamill if he has a cold so i'm like there's something a little bit off about it but for the most part i think he does a pretty decent job and you know, if I'm comparing him to Under the Red Hood's a good example. If I'm comparing it to the guy who did the Joker in Under the Red Hood, whose name I don't remember at the moment, compared to Troy Baker doing it here, I'm going to much prefer Troy Baker doing his Mark Hamill impersonation because I thought that the voice Joker had in the in Under the Red Hood was completely wrong for the character. I agree. It's it's a distraction. Um, there's something there's something so good about when the characters aren't or the actors aren't doing it. It's not exactly a pitch perfect impression. They've still got a little bit of their own spin, but you can yeah. tell wh- whose version of the character they're trying to bring to the table. Right. And that that to me is is perfect. And I'm, I'm grateful that these projects give opportunities to performers who are going to follow in the footsteps like that so that, you know, that style of Joker doesn't live or die with Mark Hamill. Mm-hmm. You know, that that take on the character similar to Connor's take on Batman. It's a definitive take. And uh, I don't want to see people try to do their own thing to, to put to like top it. Mm-hmm. If, if we can still have that version of the character in a faithful tribute, I'll take that every time. Also um, we have another Titan Titans connection because uh, Titus Welliver, who played Lex Luthor in uh, the new season of Titans, 
he does um he does Carmine Falcone here. Uh yes, in my notes I wrote down Mob Bosch. <laughs> That's all I have for Titus Welliver <laughs> as Carmine Falcone. I, I I liked his casting. It was fun. It was it was um my thoughts on any of the casting is like, does it take me out? Do I, mm. do I, do I immediately accept? Oh yeah. That's, that's Bruce Wayne's voice. That's commissioner Gordon's voice. That's Carmine's voice. Or am I like, wait, who's talking? Why is what's mm-hmm. happening? Uh, which sometimes happens when you get um, a miscast on say the Joker where it's like, well, that's, that's not the Joker's voice. Right. Yeah. Um, although funny enough, he wasn't a TV show called Falcone, which, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm just looking at now. And, uh, Oh, I didn't realize this. He was also he was also on Supernatural. He played uh, War. In, wow. Um, okay. Yes. Um, so yeah, uh, he he was he was good in that, and uh, it's funny because I just you know just seen his name pop up because I thought he was really great in. Um, have you seen him in Titans yet? No, I have to catch up. Okay, so yeah, he he's plays Lex Luthor in the in the new season, and he's really he does a really cool Lex Luthor. I think he's much more of the um, I think. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the guy who does him on Supergirl, um, John Cryer. John Cryer, thank you. Yeah, um, John Cryer is almost—he's he, got an interesting interpretation where it's kind of a spin on the on the Gene Hackman Lex Luthor. Yeah, um, but Welliver's Luthor seems very much more in the Clancy Brown vein, so I, I've really enjoyed seeing him in that part. Um, and you know, speaking of on par ca- on on the nose casting, like you know, Alistair Duncan as Alfred, that was just perfect. Like I, as soon as I heard his voice, my mind immediately went to um, uh, the animated series and thinking about, wait a minute, that's not. I, I can't remember who who did played him there. I'm blanking on it, but he passed away several years ago. So I'm like, I know it can't be him because he's he's not around anymore. But but seeing him in. Um, I'm just looking it up here. Oh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. He was amazing as Alfred. He's like, again, you're talking about definitive voices. That's the voice I always hear when I think of Alfred. And Alistair Duncan, you know, almost like exactly the same voice. Yeah, it's, he's so good. And they, I think, really knew they, I don't know if which came first in this case. It might have just been that they wanted more Alfred in the story. But we get scenes of Alfred sooner and... Mm-hmm. uh more often than you have in the original story. And I think that's a great choice for any adaptation. Always give me more Alfred. Alfred as a character, even when he's not the kind of sardonic, you know, teasing Alfred, which everybody loves. That's to me, it's essential to the mm-hmm. character. But even when that is kind of dialed back, the presence of Alfred Pennyworth Batman's butler mm-hmm. is, is a little, you know, it's a little absurd that Batman has a butler. Bruce Wayne should have a butler, but Batman having a butler <laughs> is fun. It's 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 lighthearted in a way that, you know, totally to me nails the the, the dichotomy of this character and grounds him. And I and I understand why the comic for like the first five, four or five issues steers away from Alfred. We don't see him. Mm-hmm. Um because we're focused on a different side of the character. Right. And here, you know, it it just contextualizes Batman in a way that you want to see. Mm-hmm. And um the other one I really wanted to mention was uh, um, David Dasmalchain as Calendar Man. Mm. I think that was the other one that really kind of stood out to me. I thought he did a, he really kind of captured that energy that Calendar Man had in the series, even though I think he's underused in these movies. 
but um, but I think he did a really good job with that. Yeah, we talk a lot about like the what the choices that they're making in these animated adaptations beyond just the long Halloween and mm-hmm. the attempts to make these the the either the timeless or or potentially definitive versions of these stories, often by cutting away some of the narrative clutter. Mm-hmm. That, that ties some of the in continuity stories to whatever was happening in the canon at the time, like like the changes in Under the Red Hood, the changes in Hush. Right. And Long Halloween has the benefit of of not having that. It was kind of out of out of time, out of continuity mm-hmm. when it was released, um, and it's over time become more often the the definitive version because it's just so good that mm-hmm. it's the one everyone has in their own minds anyway. But the Calendar Man arc is one of those moments where this adaptation could have chosen to to use this piece and this narrative thread in a way that either pays off more or feels more integral to the story and they just they don't take the opportunity really he's what he's still kind of just there yeah i think one of the big weakness one of the big strengths of the long halloween comic book was this idea of gotham city changing right gotham was very much a character in that comic and this idea of you know, the old way is dying out and Batman's kind of ushered in this new era where we're not going to have the the old school mob bosses anymore. Instead, we're transitioning to the the era of freaks. And Holiday's a really good represent... Holiday and uh, Harvey both represent that in different ways, right? You have Holiday, you know, spoilers for everyone who doesn't read the comic, but they went a completely different direction than the movie did where... <clears throat> Harvey Dent, you know, may have started out as ho- as the holiday killer and then or Gilda may have started out as the holiday killer, but then Alberto Falcone picks up the mantle and he's <clears throat> a big part of that story is that whole transition thing, the fact that the neglected son <clears throat> comes up and he's helping transition he's literally helping killing off the mob era so that it can transition to the era of freaks and Alberto's a really good it's it's a very it's a nice twist on the Michael Corleone story where you know <clears throat> excuse me there's this you know he starts off as you know he's the favored son the one that the mob boss wants to give everything to but doesn't but wants him to be better than this mob stuff wants him to do something more with his life and he ends up getting roped into it though in a in a similar way to how Michael gets roped into it into the in the Godfather Um, But whereas Michael is very much trying to become his father and, you know, try and take the um, take the Corleone empire into the light. At least that's how he starts off and trying to legitimize everything. Um, Spoilers for anyone who has not seen the Godfather movies doesn't quite work out that way. (laughs) But but Alberto goes the, the other direction. He's he feels that scorn. Right. He and he wants to destroy everything his father's built. And he really feels a connection with these freaks. And it really kind of disappointed me that the movie didn't go that route. Yeah, the changes to Alberto and then tying him to Gilda mm-hmm. is such a departure. And I was I was more ambivalent about it the first time that I watched these adaptations and revisiting them to talk to talk about them and I, I watched them back to back. It's just such a different, mm. and we talked about the comic uh, in depth previously. So I had that kind of fresh in my mind. It, it just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I really preferred the version where Gilda kind of 
wrongfully assumes that Harvey has picked up the torch mm-hmm. and Harvey doesn't until the very end when as Two-Face he's he's taking action. Right. Making Alberto this kind of like I mean it, it, the the changes even just make it feel too close to Hush even mm-hmm. where there's like oh the reveal of who's really truly behind it and there was this connection that you know is seeded kind of through the story but not really mm-hmm. not in a way that you can solve um there's a couple heavy-handed hints where if you know then it's clear oh he gets cut off before he can say it mm-hmm. um and then there's moments like send <laughs> sending the flowers to dent and to mm-hmm. gilda in the in the hospital that just really strain any kind of like credulity which i know is silly to say in a, a batman series <laughs> but it just it's it takes a compelling character and really makes him kind of one note and uh, then takes Gilda who is already defined by her relationship to her husband mm-hmm. and now makes her defined by her relationship to two men. It, <laughs> Which... You know, it's so interesting when I watch this because both of these, this movie and also the killing joke, they approach these stories, which had pretty bad treatment of its female um, characters and not not the main character, but at least one of their female characters in it. Where and they're like, and they go in with this idea of like, okay, we're gonna make this better, we're gonna fix this. And in both cases, they made it worse. <laughs> I thought that was so weird. I'm like, I'm like, did you guys even think about what you're doing here? Because you know, in you know, Killing Joke, the whole idea was okay. So Barbara just pops in the story to get shot and abused by the Joker. So that's bad. We should give her something more to do. So we're going to do this opening segment where we see her as Batgirl. We see her in action. I'm like, okay, good. That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then we see her have sex on, you know, you know, sex on the roof with Batman. I'm just like, why? And then we look at this one and, you know, the whole idea of, okay, she went to Oxford. She, knew alberto she was going to be a lawyer herself but she put her dreams on the back burner for harvey i can see where we're going with that but then you tie in the whole thing where her and alberto had this whole relationship and you know she got pregnant with his child and they got married and then carmine you know put his foot down and forced her to have an abortion and so now she's getting revenge on carmine it just first off it kills that whole overarching story that underlying theme of the long Halloween of that transition between the mobs to the freaks that that's completely gone now. And then also you're adding in this very cliched sexist twist to it. And I just thought, I'm like, we don't need this. Nobody is asking for this version of Gilda Dent. The, the choices in these adaptations sometimes are, are baffling because it, I think there maybe is pressure to tell a story that is going to be surprising and fresh to people mm-hmm. who've read the comics a thousand times, but that's not what people who've read the comics a thousand times want. They mm-hmm. want to see the story they know and love uh, with room for improvement in certain areas, but like, it's got to be in service of the story and right. uh, like the changes to the killing joke where, where Barbara and Bruce have sex. Like that is Bruce Tim's specific, odd fetish and i i personally i like vehemently reject that characterization Mm. i think that's such a gross scene to have added especially like it just makes her um like a sex object to both batman and the joker and it's Mm -hmm. who is asking for that that's horrible um 
such a bizarre thing, but in that case, at least doesn't certainly doesn't excuse it, but we can trace the origin of that idea to a specific creator Mm -hmm. here. The changes um, just feel like an attempt to kind of like rewrite the story. And and as we talked about on, on the Patreon episode, one of the biggest challenges that the long Halloween has is that core mystery. Uh-huh. And that was a place to, you know, open up the hood and tinker with the story and the adaptation. And I think the choice to really kind of more firmly thread the, the Batman and Catwoman relationship through the movie is an example of that succeeding where uh-huh. they, they made changes and it works. Um, Batman going to Chinatown and, and investigating and following leads is a is a change to the story that mostly works mm-hmm. it's new material that's not present in the original at all yeah i but think the ch- these sorry, other changes are i was gonna say these other changes are really really foolish um and don't pay off they they hurt characters that needed that boost that's what baffles me so much about this movie because i i loved part one i thought part one was so strong and they did such a good job of setting everything up like when they killed alberto i'm just like okay and they make it definitive that he's dead in this like there's no you know he gets his body shredded by the freaking propellers they're just making it very clear that okay he is definitely not coming back so when that happened i'm like okay because i saw these separately when they premiered on hbo max so when i saw that first part i'm just like okay this is interesting i wonder what they're gonna go from here um, and I could see them tying in Gilda to it with the conversation she had with, with Harvey, but it just, there was a, there was a strain to their relationship that they were, that felt very forced in that first movie. And I'm, that I wasn't feeling. And then they built on that in the second one. So it almost feels like, I mean, one of the great things about the long Halloween story is you feel that love that Harvey and Gilda have for each other. So it becomes a real tragedy when Harvey goes through his transformation. That's gone in this and it's replaced with a very sexist type of tragedy where she's, you know, the father of her husband forced her to have an abortion. And Harvey almost feels just like a means to an end for her. Like she got with Harvey because he was after the mob and that's it. That's the only reason she ever cared about Harvey. So that whole tragic element is also gone too. That take that out of her character too. But then it, it makes an extra sin too, where it, it damages Batman as a character too, because, you know, in long Halloween, the comic book, we can, like we talked about that. And like you just mentioned, that mystery had some issues with it. So I can understand wanting to, to tinker with that, wanting to fix some things. I get that. That's that's totally um, legitimate. There are ways to fix aspects of this story, to tie Gilda in, to make it more of a mis- more of a classical mystery, and to to make that ending make a bit more sense, as opposed to kind of the almost twist ending we have here. But the movie also does other things where we constantly see Holiday, and it's clearly a man. Right. It's very obviously not Gilda. So, you know, the build is all wrong and and everything. And it's like and in the comic, it was always off panel. We never got to actually see Holiday except in like silhouette. So that never really worked either. And then. But the other thing in, in the Long Halloween comic, um, we find out at the end that, you know, Gilda is, you know, again, it's kind of fist ham fisted. Right. The fact that she's talking to herself as she's burning evidence in the basement. OK, but it's, you know, it's a comic book trope. We can get, we can forgive him for that. But nobody knows, right? And then after that story, she just disappears. Um, 
But in this story, she's telling this all to Batman. And Batman knows. <coughs> Excuse me. And he lets That's her right. go. And he lets her go. And I'm just like, that doesn't make that doesn't fit Batman at all. Like he's not someone who's just gonna I can understand if it's someone who had maybe been through some stuff or, or something, or if it was like a, you know, a nonviolent crime, I can understand him giving them another chance, but she killed a shitload of people. <laughs> it's essentially the version of, of Batman where in the Robert Pattinson, Matt Reeves version, when the Riddler is like, actually, you know, I think we're working towards a common goal. Aren't we like, we've been mm. in cahoots. If Batman was like, well, yeah, you're right. It is good that all these corrupt, you know, criminals and and corrupt figures are gone and off the table. Like, no, that's like Batman loses his shit in that moment where he's mm. like, I I have been a tool for evil, and, yeah, you know, unwillingly. And in, in this version, he just kind of lets her go. It's the changes to the to the end of part one. I I totally was on board with. I liked the definitive death for Alberto. Mm. I liked that he still had a had a presence and factored into the ending. I didn't care for the way that he did, but the fact that he isn't just like completely forgotten worked mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I understood the need to kind of really firmly definitively end part one as its own piece of content. Sure, mm-hmm. it feels like an ending. And then it, it lends itself in the way that, you know, if it were ever to be adapted to a, a feature film and they were to split it up, I'd imagine they'd come to a similar kind of conclusion where the two parts kind of bookend the two holiday killers. Mm-hmm. Now there's the torch has been passed. Um, but that it just doesn't really work. The Gilda and Harvey relationship, like you said, is so bizarrely incidental. It's almost like they're only married because they're married in the original story that's right. that's being adapted and they didn't know how to reconfigure her character. Um, the, the, the parallels between Batman, Gordon and Harvey, both as kind of how they want to take, take on the mob, how they want to change the city and then where they at, where they are each at with respect to their personal lives is, is great in the original story. And, mm. and it's, it's choices here start to reinforce that we see, um, uh, Jim's wife we see Barbara and Jim Jr. There's a ho- cute Halloween scene added. Mm. They're kind of more firmly established as characters um, as opposed to not really being present in, in the comic really. right? We get to see that you know Harvey and Gilda wanting to start a family. They're not as far as the Gordons are in their, in their journey and then you have Bruce taking the very first baby step of can I even let other mm. people into my circle of trust eventually you know planting the seeds in the sequel for the start of the bat family with him taking in dick grayson like that thread eventually pays off even though Mm. it's just kind of tiptoed here and it it doesn't that kind of parallel falls apart in the adaptation it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like they were really trying to do the story justice in as much as just surprise us with a different ending but then the weird thing is they get so close in so many moments where they have these they're matching these parallels like you see gordon and and barbara with the kids and you see them you know struggling to balance the work and family life and then you see gilda and harvey and talking about having kids whereas in the comic gilda wanted to have a family and that was one of her motivations was which again you know kind of a sexist cliche but it it made a bit more sense that, you know, and it made a bit more sense when you're comparing their relationship to Jim and Barbara. And then you've got Bruce and Selena who are just kind of starting out here. And, and they, they set it up so well in part one 
but then they undermine it when they start having these, it's almost like they take all the problems that Jim and Barbara were having in the comic and they put them on, they force them onto Harvey and Gilda. And then they add in this extra twist of Gilda having this past relationship with Alberto and it just, none of it works. And it's just like, you, you had such a good chance to, to really drive this parallel home and you just completely shit the bed on it. And, and I, I think that some of those threads, those secondary themes and, and the parallels, uh, they, they get off on the wrong foot from the beginning of part one, mm-hmm. where the Johnny VD wedding set piece is kind of immediately removed. Yeah. Uh, instead of, of Bruce and Carmine talking while overlooking the wedding below, they're just looking at Gotham. Instead right. of Bruce and Selena meeting in their civilian identities and, and you know, establishing that, that that's kind of the start of the relationship, that's kind of just thrown in as a thing that's going on. And we first see them interacting as Batman and Catwoman. Mm-hmm. And and that just changes the, the tone of the story. It changes the, you know, it becomes less of a story about Harvey Dent. It becomes more of a story about Two-Face. And yeah. it becomes less of a story about Bruce Wayne. It becomes a story about Batman, which it works. But the original, the genuine article's version of starting the other way and then leading into those is just so effective. And it's one of those mm-hmm. elements that didn't, didn't need to change. Yeah. Um there are a few things I want to mention in there too. Uh, like, I think, I think they do mostly, they, they do a good job with the, the Bruce and Selena stuff in here. And again, Naya Rivera, you know, you know, rest in peace. She, she did such a great job as Catwoman. And I thought they, they did. And I like that they incorporated that hush aspect of her finding out that um, Bruce Wayne is Batman. And they work that into the story where, when they break up, it's because they both know the other has this dual identity. And I thought that was a really, and when she even says, you know, they, they handled that, they executed that brilliantly when she says like, you know, don't worry, I'll still see you on the other side. Like there are so many different ways to interpret that. And as we find out in the movie, it, she is talking, she is talking about what we think about. She is talking about the fact that they're both they're, They've got these other identities. Um, I really love what they did with, with that, but you know, we lose something when we lose that, that contrast between that in the comic when we have Bruce and Selena meeting at the wedding and they start dancing versus when they meet as Batman and Catwoman and they start chasing each other on the rooftops like that there's such nice symmetry to to those two scenes in the comic book and that's just kind of lost in here um uh another thing sorry go ahead I was going to say, and we, and we lose the potential story beat of Selena having some agency and, and discovering it for herself that, mm. that Bruce is Batman because Alberto kind of just starts blurting it out and just makes it very, very obvious before his passing that he's just kind of like sharing this information. It's mm. like, all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, one of the things I think they did well here, which the the comic book kind of touches on, but it doesn't really address directly is the idea that this is a young and inexperienced Batman. So I did like they have that scene when <clears throat> Bruce is in the cave, when the, I think it was Maroney who says to him, you're not much of a detective, are you? And then and in the cave, when Bat, when Bruce is talking to Alfred, and he's like, you know, I thought maybe I could just, you know, clean up the streets and, you know, put a few guys in jail, maybe scare some others straight. But now I'm thinking, you know, maybe Batman has to be more. Maybe he does have to be a detective, which does add a wrinkle because then you're like well what happened all the years when you're traveling the globe and learning how to be a detective i get that there's a store there's a there's a continuity problem there but i did like the fact that they address it that he is not quite a detective yet and he's still trying to figure out how to do this i 
in some ways I like it in other ways. And it feels kind of ham fisted because it feels like they're just adding that in there to set up the end when he finds out that Gilda is holiday. Yeah. I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that as much as this is its own standalone adaptation, it is also to some degree trying to be the first Batman story in this new DC mm-hmm. animated film continuity. And we see that with the new added post credit scene uh, where some other heroes arrive at, uh, I think at Wayne Manor. Yeah. yeah. Not the Flashing Manor. Manor. They just show up at his front door. Um, and so, you know, the idea that this being Bruce kind of going through the mis- like making mistakes and learning what it means to be Batman works for me. I, and I, I think it's like just a nitpick with, a, with the way that that line is mm-hmm. operating. Um, because I do think to compare again to the Robert Pattinson version, which, you know, I have to, I have is a touch point for this film because it is a different adaptation of roughly the same story. Right. Um, we get a similar beat when Penguin calls Batman and Gordon like world's greatest detectives or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and like kind of tells them off. And that's a similar kind of beat, but I thought <clears throat> that was more effective because they're it's making a mistake as a detective, mm-hmm. having, you know, gone too far on down the wrong rabbit hole, as opposed to the almost petulant kind of like, oh man, I'm gonna have to solve mysteries. <laughs> like, yeah, man, you're Batman. That is <laughs> that's actually your whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I like that they're, I like what they're trying to do there, but they're, 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 they're hammering. It's like they're, they had to tell us like, see, 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 look, he's trying to be a detective. See, see, and I'm like, okay, okay. We get yeah. it. We get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have appreciated something more akin to like the glider crash scene mm-hmm. where it's like, he, he's literally inexperienced. He hasn't fully, you know, he's not operating on autopilot by any means. He is, right. he is learning, uh, you know, on the job. Um, and I think that there's something to be said that this is also trying to be that first Batman story for this continuity. So it might not even be as far into his career as we're accustomed to thinking the long Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the comic books, it's roughly around year two or year three is when it takes place. Um, but another aspect I think that this movie kind of dropped the ball on was, one of the best things about Long Halloween is that relationship between Batman and Harvey Dent, which we talked about in, in the Patreon episode, and how we really feel that friendship between those two characters. And so when we get in this and, you know, and Batman's talking about my friend Harvey and all this kind of stuff, it all it never fits. It, it feels like this stuff is there because it's supposed to... Like, one of the things that annoyed me about a lot of the Snyder films was stuff happens because it's supposed to happen, right? Why does Lex Luthor hate Superman? Well, because he's Lex Luthor and that's Superman and they hate each other. <clears throat> um, and, you know, and I think we had a lot of that kind of same idea here where stuff happens because it's supposed to happen, right? So why are Batman and Harvey Dent friends? Well, they're friends because they were friends in the comic books. And and the, the movie, it's but whenever they do these adaptations, the thing that gets me nuts is like, you can't, just rely on people having that knowledge from the comic books. You have to read, you have to do the work of rebuilding that stuff, which is, you know, compared to the, the Iron Man and uh, Captain America relationship in the MCU. I mean, I hated the civil war comic book, but, um, but one of the things I loved about what they did in the civil war movie is they had built up that relationship. So when those two characters come into contact, it makes sense. It totally fits with where they've, where they started and where they've been over the course of these past several movies. 
right? They did the work of re of building up that relationship in those movies so that it made sense when they got to the Civil War and they fought each other. Whereas in the Snyder movies, Batman and Superman fight because Batman and Superman have to fight. And but that relationship's not there. It doesn't make sense. Same thing here with Batman and Harvey Dent. Like on some level, I can buy the I wouldn't say he'd let her go, but I can buy Bruce being conflicted about going after bringing in Gilda because of his friendship to Harvey. But that friendship with Harvey is never built up in these in this movie. Yeah, and there's a change that I think, you know, we talked a little bit on the on the Patreon episode about like my personal headcanon for the character and, and things that I think should be true in every adaptation. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you occasionally see things that, that come from different versions of the character and then kind of solidify they they become legend they become mm -hmm. that's the version everyone knows so that's the version that creators have in mind when they're telling new stories and it just becomes the version and in this case the idea that you know they do fill in a little bit specific more specifically in the background the harvey and, and bruce or harvey and batman friendship uh in that harvey is explicitly the da who locks up the rogues yeah and, and i love that change and it's so buried in the background but i want to see the version of year one where it's not just batman and dent have spoken they've, mm -hmm. they've met it is it is batman realizes his way doesn't fully work on its own that he needs the law to lock up the criminals that he's that he's leaving mm -hmm. or capturing or whatever that that you know that that that's where the gordon side comes in with with due process and that's where they need an ally in the DA's office and, and Harvey being that ally and that being the beginning of this friendship. And then this being the first time where the three come together to actually start coordinating larger goals. Um, that really works for me. And because we don't have that story, we just hear mm. about it. Yeah. It doesn't have that weight. Well, you make a good point. And that's a story that I feel like is kind of undertold a little bit. And not only in the, in the movie, but in the comics as well. Because, like you said, we just kind of established that Batman and Harvey know each other in that one scene. But, and that's the same thing in the comic, right? We when he pops up on the roof, and then you know they had the same exchange, bats, dent, and then Gordon's like, "Oh, so you two know each other?" And remember, in in the year one comic book, we see that one panel where Gordon's in Dent's office, then he leaves, and then Dent turns and there's Batman there. So we know they've met there, but I think year one as as much things as it gets right, I feel like it it's kind of a misnomer calling it Batman year one. It's really Gordon year one. And it it loses something in telling Bruce's story and also Harvey's story. Like the fact that it doesn't really tell Harvey's story at all. And we've never really gotten that story. I mean, I think The Dark Knight probably did it the best of all of them where it shows them actually working together and building up that relationship. Um, and I, I feel like that's a story we haven't really gotten that much in the comics, unless I'm mistaken. No, we really haven't. And sometimes that comes down to the timing of, of when Harvey <laughs> becomes the DA. But I, I'm interested in a story where Batman is realizing I, I need to, if, if I'm going to send these rogues away, they need to stay locked mm. up. Ha ha. Uh, and, you know, not, not that that really works, but in this, in this version, the early, early goings, he thinks it, it's possible. And, you know, I'm interested, does does Bruce help Harvey become the DA through through money? Does Batman help Harvey become the DA through his methods? There's a story to be told there, uh, and especially the idea of 
Harvey being the one who locks up the rogues. They all have individual beef mm-hmm. with him, maybe as much or more than they do with Batman. And then the flip of it, of him, him becoming two-faced and, and being one of them and, and whether he's welcomed or not is even in the original long Halloween, it's kind of glossed over because that threat of Harvey being the one to lock them up is not made explicit. It, you could argue that it is implied by him being the DA who right. else is going to be doing it, but it's never been a, a story beat that has been dug into. Mm-hmm. And I think this adaptation takes the first step by directly drawing that connection of if this is true, then this must also yeah. be true. Yeah. And I'm very interested in, in a story from, you know, Bruce's perspective of his first year that maybe leans farther from the noir of, of year one and, and more mm-hmm. into the, the first inklings of the freaks of Gotham. We've mm-hmm. had versions of, of their first appearances retold in the modern era, but some of those even now are, are 30 years old. So it's, right. there's time to kind of dig in and refresh those. Well, I think especially, you know, like we talked about in the Patreon episode, um, one of the biggest missteps in the long Halloween comic is how underused the penguin is. And, and that, cause he's that perfect transitional character. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that in uh, Matt Reeves's films. Cause we get hints of that with, um, with the penguin and that. So I think I'm, and now we're getting that penguin TV show. So I think it's going to be, I think Matt Reeves is finally doing that. I think he's got the same idea that we've had when we were talking about that, which I can't wait to see. But um, you know, I'm also thinking about, the next episode we're going to be covering Batman begins. So I haven't rewatched it yet, but this has got me, this has got my gears turning and thinking about that, where I've always felt one of the biggest missteps of Batman begins was the Rachel Dawes thing and having this, you know, Bruce's childhood friend, who's now a DA and his love interest. I think, okay, remove the love interest part and you could put Harvey Dent in there and it makes so much more sense and does, and works so much better as a buildup to what will happen in the dark Knight instead of just introducing Harvey as much as as much as I love what they did with Harvey in the Dark Knight, I feel like we're rushing things a little bit too much. Yeah, and I, I did think that there was a nice allusion to the Dark Knight, specifically when Harvey and Gilda are on the back porch, they see mm-hmm. the bat signal, and she's like, Oh, you've got to go. And he rushes off. Um, because if 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 this happened to be your very first Batman story, you could be forgiven for thinking wait a minute is is that batman Mm -hmm. and no of course not but um you know that thread of he could have been you know he he is really played with in the dark knight and uh, we get a little bit of a glimpse of it here Uh, and i think that is one of the definitive harvey dent stories yeah absolutely um one of the things i like they did in this movie though uh in as many complaints as I have about part two, one of the things I did like, and which we talked about in the Patreon episode, the scene when the rogues uh, attack Carmine and how Batman dispatches them way too easily. This version, it felt like he actually had to struggle against them. It felt like a real fight. And I'm glad they had done that. And they showed them to be more threatening as a group than they were in um, in the comic. It also made more sense for Selina to be on Bruce's side. Not only, even in the comic, it would have made more sense for her to be on Batman's side than it did in than her being on the rogue side. Yeah, and I think this the there's a line earlier again when they're kind of establishing that Harvey is the DA who locked up the rogues. Batman says, you know, he, he's the one who locked up your friends, mm-hmm. and uh, we get that's enough characterization to see that she's further along her journey. She's already the gears are turning to get her to that place where she's fighting alongside Batman. Mm-hmm. She's, she's demonstrating that by leading him to the money more directly um, in the animated adaptation than, than just seeing 
Batman and Harvey there um, on her tip right. uh, in, in the comic. Um, and that, yeah, that big set piece with all the rogues feels like a big moment, feels like a boss fight, mm-hmm. feels like a turning point uh, in Batman's career. Because whereas for the mob's perspective, they're being usurped, their role is being replaced, it's, the times have irrevocably changed. From Batman's perspective, he's already locked up the Joker and Poison Ivy and the Mad Hatter mm-hmm. and, and, and all these early rogues. So his turning point is now they've kind of united. They're mm-hmm. they're more formidable as a group than any one of them are individually. And this truly is becoming a different type of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think that the... Um... Oh, God, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, it'll come back to me in a moment. But um, uh, let's move on to something else. And I'm sure it'll come back to me in a minute. Um, the art style is something I wanted to mention here. Uh, oh, I do remember what I wanted to say. The the Scarecrow in this. I yeah. thought they did a much better job with the Scarecrow in this than they did in the comic book. Because I always thought it was kind of weird that the Scarecrow is only talking in children's lullabies. I'm like, he's never done that before. So it felt a little off for me. It felt like Loeb just thought this was a, a kishy little, char- a t- quirky little thing to throw in. But that felt like something more like the Mad Hatter would be doing. So I liked that they didn't give that to the Scarecrow in this movie. And the change in the design is one that I felt like really was deserving too. Absolutely. I, I find, at least in the long Halloween, I'll, I'll keep it to just the long Halloween. I think Tim Sale's Scarecrow is a little bit underwhelming. He's not as, as scary as he could be. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the writing too. The Scare- Scarecrow's not given much to do in the story. He's right. just there. He could easily have been swapped out for... Mr. Freeze or, or the Riddler or any of the other rogues. Absolutely. Um, he, yeah, that's the, their changes to, to Batman and Catwoman's costumes. I thought were more utilitarian than anything. I could take it or leave it. I'm not offended by the other, the choices, mm-hmm. but I thought that the, the art style change for Scarecrow specifically one, I, I would give a big thumbs up to. I, I like that too. Yeah. Um, although you did mention the Catwoman design. I didn't like what they did with the Catwoman design here. I thought the, the shorter gloves and boots. Yeah. They may be more utilitarian, um, yeah, making it more of a gray than a purple maybe makes more sense for her as a thief. But I thought Tim Sale's design of the early Catwoman was such a good way of, you know, you know, paying homage to those original designs while also having it make a little bit more sense. I mean, I would have liked if they at least gave her long gloves and long boots, I think. I agree. And I, I hold out hope in my heart of hearts that if there were ever a feature animated adaptation, not a direct to video or streaming mm-hmm. version, that they would, the first thing would be commit to Tim Sale's art style. Yes. It's the heart of the book. It is what people remember far more fondly than the story mm-hmm. itself. Even it's, it's his interpretation of these characters and the, the world seen through this kind of prism, mm-hmm. uh, and I was so excited when they announced the adaptation. I thought for sure that would be the motivating factor to to tell an adaptation of a story that that you might feel familiar with coming in from Batman Begins or The Dark Knight or, or The Batman. Mm-hmm. But we get this kind of new DC house style that is fine. It's serviceable, but it doesn't feel like the long Halloween. You and until a- we get more stories that connect it, and need the continuity visually fine, but I'd want to see Tim sales work. Yes. That is one of the things that, um, that's exactly what I was going to mention 
next was the art style. Now, I think the art style is nice. I like this art style. Um, I think the animation is a little bit um, choppy at times. It doesn't quite, it, it seems like it was a little bit rushed. Uh, it's not as smooth as it should be, but I, but like the basic design style of it, I think it's a great design style. I think it, they do a real, they've got, you know, really nice, you know, I, I'm, I'm an amateur artist too. So I pay more attention to this stuff now than I used to, but like the line weights, you know, uh, work really well. I, th I, I found myself noticing that a lot. I thought the, the, the different uses of line weights was really well done on this. Um, I like the overall design of the characters, but I feel that the, if you're doing this, if you're looking at it as an adaptation of Tim sales art, it completely misses the mark. It's just, and I do like when they have these, and they've done this with some of the animated movies. They try to match the art style of the artist who did the original comic. And they've done it in really good ways. Like, you know, Batman, Superman, um, Public Enemies, I thought did an amazing job of capturing that Ed McGinnis style. Same thing with, um, to a lesser degree, Apocalypse did a pretty good, pretty serviceable job of capturing Michael Turner's artwork. Um, but then you get into some of the other ones, and or, you know, I think the one that did it the best was The Dark Knight Returns, right? That is perfect encapsulation of Frank Miller's art style from that comic. Same thing with year one, perfectly captured Kelly's style. But then you get into some of these other ones, like when they're, when they did the new 52 inspired stuff. And it's like, I see you're trying to do Jim Lee, but Jim Lee's style is too hyper detailed for animation. It doesn't really work, which is why you have to keep making these sacrifices to make it work in animation. And then you look at, and now they're trying to do it again. And they're like, okay, so this is a new continuity, a new universe in line with, you know, Flash and the Justice Society movie and the um, Superman Man of Tomorrow and now Long Halloween. And this is supposed to be establishing this new continuity. Okay. I mean, I get that. I get you want to do this new continuity thing, but do you have to do it with the Long Halloween then? I mean, can't you just do Long Halloween as its separate thing? Because Tim Sale's style is one, it's not hyper-detailed, right? It is something that you could easily find a way to f do in an animated form. Um, just like Darwin Cook, right? Darwin Cook has a much more, has a not as detailed style that worked really well when they did the New Frontier. So it's baffling to me why you would make this choice. It's it's tough. I, I honestly think it's it's a way to save money, probably, mm -hmm. is to reuse all these assets. And, yeah, yeah. Um, eventually if they want to pursue like a lot, you know, if say we get dark victory, Robin year one, mm -hmm. more and more stories in the same continuity that extend past the Loeb and sale era. Fine. I get it. But if we're not going to get that, then I, I am fully on board of just the, the, as a piece of content, it would have longer legs. It would feel mm -hmm. like it's not confined to this, um, you know, beginnings of an animated universe that so far has had very like this story is sh kind of shoehorned into that world other than the post credit scene that like i can yeah, believe I don't, yeah i don't yeah. care about it mm -hmm. yeah and it, it feels so out of place um as much as i like the idea that we're going to be seeing more green arrow in this universe because i think in i love green arrow and i think that um as much as i dug arrow the tv show as much as i liked justin hartley on smallville I feel like they've been doing a disservice to Green Arrow by trying to focus more on him as an ersatz Batman as opposed yeah. to being the 
I mean, when I think of Green Arrow, I think of Bernie Sanders with a bow and arrow. That's who he is. And that's what I want to see more of, like we saw in, in Justice League Unlimited. That was perfect Green Arrow. So I am hoping we'll get to see more of that Green Arrow in this new universe they're building, um, especially that they because they have a Batman in this universe. They don't have to have him. Making him the exact same thing would you know, just make him look like a, a knockoff. Um, that's my pet peeve. I always go off on though, but, but, um, but yeah, I, it just felt, you know, okay. So you're going to have the justice league here. Obviously they've discovered that Bruce Wayne is Batman then. So that, that also kind of undermines Batman a little bit too, because I mean, one of the best moments of um, Mark Wade's JLA run was when Batman makes the decision to reveal his identity to the, to the rest of the league. And when you take that away, I think that's, it undermines Batman a little bit. The fact that he's able, he, his identity was able to be discovered so easily by these heroes that as far as we know, he didn't even know existed. Yeah. It's such a self-contained Batman and Gotham and the rogues story. It, it really exists separate from the larger Mm. DC universe. And that's, far to the credit of the early batman stories so that the slow creep in of this larger superhero world through the rogues feels like a a gradual escalation it's not as effective when you're you know having folks like the flash or green arrow dealing with potentially like much bigger or stranger threats Mm -hmm. uh, on their own uh it's just and it, and they're not they're just not like planted early enough in the story like there's opportunities to have weave that in in a way so that it's like fun payoff even right. if it was like you see um like Barry and Ollie even on like the boat they can <laughs> just have two more people here when someone is shouting out that Bruce Wayne is Batman and then we're like oh what's ever going to happen with that and then mm. post credits oh thank god it was two good guys yeah yeah or also you could have done something like if you're going to have them approach bruce at the end okay fine but have them approach batman like have like yeah. green a- have like green lantern use make a bat signal in in the sky That's and great. then and then he gets there and it's and it's not gordon it's not a police it's not on police headquarters but instead it's green lantern and and flash and and superman maybe or something like that i think that would make so much more sense especially if you see it in earlier like in the background have you know some news report about how there was an earthquake in San Francisco or something like that. And, you know, San Andreas fault, you know, referencing Superman, the movie here, but, but, you know, it's, it'd be nice to have some sort of references there to bake into it. But otherwise the only real symmetry it has is that connection with the beginning when he says, we never get trick or treaters here. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. The other, and it's nice that it does come full circle that that you can demonstrate that the full year has passed, Mm -hmm. but the other, the other elements that I thought were really absent in this adaptation and, I do think it's like serviceable. I agree. It shouldn't be someone's first introduction to Batman mm-hmm. by any means, but if you love the dark Knight, you love uh, the Batman, you want to see something closer to the original mm-hmm. version of that story. It's a fun, good way to spend uh, like three hours between mm-hmm. parts one and part two. Um, but the lack of the internal monologue mm-hmm. uh, really, really, I think, makes some of the chase scenes and the action sequences feel a little dry. We're mm-hmm. not as in Bruce's head as much as we could be. Uh, and we talked about it on, on the Patreon episode, how that's one of the story's strengths is that for one of the earliest times in, in his career, you are hearing his decision-making and, and his logic as opposed to Gordon's in year one. Mm-hmm. So that absence, you know, I wouldn't want it to be overbearing. Um, 
but I thought it was deployed pretty effectively in the Batman to have that internal monologue, even as like a scene setter. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's absence here was felt. And then one of the great things that the comic does is, is when, when the holiday killings happen, you don't see holiday as we talked about Mm -hmm. you, the sound drops out. There's no sound effects on the page and it's in black and white. And that's an easily teed up cinematic moment and motif to happen as like a regular checkpoint of, okay, this is, you know, each sequence is kind of bookended by one of these killings and we don't get that in the adaptation. Mm -hmm. That would have been a very easy thing to do. Um, And it's, again, it's absence is felt. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And that that ties into something I noticed here because there's, um, I think the the narration thing I want to touch on first, Um, I felt like, as much as I love The Dark Knight Returns, the more I go back and reread that story, the more I think Frank Miller's narration is really kind of ham-fisted here. Where it, I thought the animated movie is like, I think that's like the perfect version of that story because it strips away that narration, but it, it still, and it gives us a lot of other stuff. Like it makes the the scene with the gun, which everybody misinterprets. It makes it very clear what's actually happening in that scene. Um and plus you've got, you know, Peter Weller doing an amazing job as an old Batman. But so I thought that was such a good way of doing that. Um, but in this, yeah, you're right. I think because Loeb, I think, does such a. I've got some issues with some of Loeb's writing choices, especially that he's made in recent years. Uh, but when you go back to when he was at the top of his game, when he was doing things like Long Halloween or when he was doing things like Superman, Batman, like his narration was so on point in those like the way he gets into Superman, Batman, especially the way he gets into Clark and Bruce's heads and has them talking about the other. And it gives you such a perfect understanding of their relationship, which is so much more complex than people give it credit for. And, and his narration in the long Halloween too, it's, you know, he really makes you feel and understand why Bruce cares about Harvey so much, what Bruce feels about Gotham and, and Selena and all these different characters. And it, that, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the movie feels lacking in a lot of areas because we're missing that narration. Yeah. It's one of those things that, especially in comic books, when you're trying to avoid having moments like mm-hmm. when you have say Gilda just openly declaring her plan to no one, that first person narration sets the tone for the story. It sets the rhythm. It allows you to potentially smooth over like jumping from scene to scene to scene without mm-hmm. it feeling too much like montage for montage's sake, because we're, we're staying in the headspace of the lead character. We're, we're seeing sometimes what they're, the memories that they're thinking about as, you know, as Bruce is in the cave working mm-hmm. on a case, he's bringing us up to speed on, on what's been happening or, or whatever the case may be. And, and not having that kind of first person perspective, not having that direct understanding of what he's thinking or, or what's, challenging him or what answers he doesn't have Mm -hmm. it's it's tough because you just have to really try to do a lot of scene work and then when you're also doing an adaptation you there's not a ton of room for new scenes and certainly Mm -hmm. in this adaptation specifically a lot of the real estate for new scenes is going to action sequences right which all for the most part land in part one you have uh, the Batman Catwoman extended chase scene. You have the car chase that's not present. The, mm-hmm. the Batmobile itself isn't even in the original comic. And to see the 
the essentially the Batman the animated series Batmobile. It's great. It works. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Um, the they leads to the the Chinatown fight sequence where you get to see, you know, kind of where Batman's at in terms of brutality and what what people think about him. Mm-hmm. You know, from like a street level, you have a Joker fight at the end of part one that has like has gravitas it feels like okay the joker is a formidable foe yeah all of that kind of works but and maybe you could make the case that in in an 85 minute part one and and i think maybe slightly longer part two that they could have gone for two two hour part one and part twos Mm -hmm. and, and put in some of that scene work again um but for the pretty lean film that we get those action sequences are worth it yeah. At the expense of narration? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's an interesting point, too, is like... Because I, I understand with, like, the earlier DC animated films, they, those were being made when they had this deal with Cartoon Network. So they had to have them 80 minutes because those fit nicely into those, those, those um, you know, three-hour, three-block... Those uh, hour-and-a-half blocks, two-hour blocks or whatever it is. And that makes sense. I can get that. Um, so, like we had talked about um, all-star Superman and that was made during that time. And they had made some, some sacrifices to that story, which I'm still not completely on board with, but as we talked about at that time, it fit into that block. So I could understand why, but these ones don't seem like they're doing that anymore. So I'm not sure why they still feel like they have to be a slave to these 80 minute formulas. It just doesn't make much sense. I mean, you've got, it's going to be direct to, to, to video. It's going to be on streaming people are going to watch these all in one sitting anyway. So why not just, you know, commit and make like a full three hour movie instead of trying to work it into these two 80 minute blocks. I just don't get that. Or better yet, look, look at what the folks uh, across the aisle are doing with um, the spider verse animated Mm -hmm. films. Recognize that if there is um, a ceiling for the amount of Batman content that the folks are, are looking to consume, for better or worse, we might not have hit that ceiling oh, yeah, yet. Although absolutely. certainly on the comic side, I know there's a strong push for, uh, you know, some of the, the secondary and tertiary characters to, to get their own books again that they've mm-hmm. had historically. But when it comes to animated adaptations, I, I would love to see the theatrical resources poured into it, an animated Batman film. Mask of Phantasm is, is fantastic. It's really, it's the greatest really Batman good film. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And, and, I think there's an opportunity, even with this three-hour, two-part adaptation of The Long Halloween, to tell a story like The Long Halloween on the big screen in an animated mm-hmm. format with a, the distinction of you know adapting Tim Sale's art style so that mm-hmm. it, just from the, from a glance you can tell okay this this has a this project has a reason to exist beyond the version that we just got right. But I think people would come out in droves for something like that. Because I also think the audience that is going to see the Batman, that's a small sliver of it is going to then tune into a two-part animated mm. film on HBO Max. Right. Uh, it just doesn't have the reach. Even even an animated TV series is going to have a, a larger marketing push than, than these films got. So mm. I think there's room to tell the story again. <laughs> and I think there's a way to do it in a way that still feels fresh as oh, many times as we heard it. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And I feel like one of the biggest sins of this movie too is, you know, not only not adapting Tim Sale's artwork, but not even adapting Tim Sale's look for Two-Face because that's just such an iconic look for that character. And they just go back to the different colored hair and different colored... I'm just like, you're, 
such a missed opportunity here. And I just don't know why you're doing it. Um, but one of the things I think that it did also, I think it, because one of the things I, one of the issues I had with the all-star Superman is you can clearly see when the issue breaks are, they almost try to be a little bit too slavish to the structure, which doesn't really work for a movie. I think this kind of did a little bit better job of integrating those into the story. So it doesn't feel as sharply divided. Yeah, there's definitely, and we talked about it before where, um, you know, you get the, the dent explosion and then immediately Batman following a lead to get answers. Whereas in the comic, that was an issue break. And so then the next month you have Batman just declaring Harvey Dent is dead. And mm-hmm. if you're in like issue two or three, you know, he's not dead. Right. right. <laughs> the beginning of the long Halloween. So that doesn't have any sort of dramatic effect for the reader. Um, but certainly Batman in dogged pursuit of a suspect mm-hmm. because his friend has been attacked. That really works for me. Yeah. Um, not to harp on all the changes that are made in this adaptation, but another one comes to mind, which is Batman giving Harvey the double-headed coin, mm-hmm. introducing that element at the warehouse, um, which is, we and we talked about how even um, the original version, the Loeb and Sale version kind of really skims over where the coin comes from mm-hmm. and what it means. And like, there's references to Harvey's backstory uh, from Eye of the Beholder, but they pretty much just, are relying on your existing knowledge of the character. Mm-hmm. And here they at least pay lip service to introducing that, that prop. And, and, and it's, it's fun for, for Batman to be like, we'll flip for it. And it's a, mm-hmm. a two headed coin. And it's, that feels true mm-hmm. to character, but strange to link to a major two face motif. Well, especially because it, it's the coin that Carmine gives Bruce when he was a kid too. So I feel like, Oh Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think that's yeah. It's it, it's pushing things a little bit. I think it's like you sacrifice this really good, you know, symmetry with Alberto being the transitional character into the freaks, and then you're replacing it basically with Carmine giving the coin to Bruce, and then Bruce giving the coin to Harvey, and it feels like that's that's like how they're trying to pass that theme along. But it was so much stronger the way they did it in the comic books, and you didn't have to change that. <laughs> yeah, it, it especially because we don't get that detail of where Bruce gets the coin until later. Right. Right. It's not until part two. Yeah. He first gives it to Harvey. So you're just like, why does does Batman carrying around a coin? Um, And that, that's that kind of, I don't hate that. It's, there's a reason for him to have the coin, but I do hate that. It's like, it's such a major part of what you Mm -hmm. think of with two face. So to have that be just like, something that is more important to, yeah uh, the beat between carmine and bruce is such a unique beat to the two of them and i like how that informs that relationship i like what it says about batman as a character and what his goals are and i don't believe that that the batman who's inspired by his dad the doctor who will help anybody mm-hmm. is the same batman who would essentially just kind of troll his friend in that moment by giving him the coin yeah um yeah. I don't know. I do like the coin being the two-sided coin that then gets one side scratched up. That still lands mm-hmm. for me. I, I like that it's versions where Two-Face is operating with the two-faced coin is a little too goofy for me and takes mm-hmm. away from the duality of the character right. if the outcomes are predetermined. So I like that. Um, but I don't know. It, it still feels very much more like um, Two-Face's origins than Harvey mm-hmm. Dent's origins. Yeah. And the hints that we get are compelling, but I don't think that story's really been told in a, a modern way. Agreed, agreed. And I think that the 
I feel like DC has now gone down this route twice with these animated universes. They tried it with the new 52 stuff and they ended that with justice league, um, uh, dark apocalypse. I think that's what it was called. Um, and that just, that universe never really seemed to catch on. They had some good moments in there. I thought, you know, I like the death of Superman stuff. I like the, mostly I like the, the son of Batman stuff, although I felt like they're, they're not really doing such a good job of capturing Damien's character. But there were definitely stuff I liked in there, um, but it just it just never really caught on. And it's the same thing now with this, right? They're trying to start this new universe with, you got the long Halloween. I haven't seen the Justice Society movie, so I can't comment on that. But I saw Man of Tomorrow, and I'm just like, they're okay. But I keep finding myself going back to that idea of, all right, well, you did the shared universe thing on TV. You had the Arrowverse for, you know, what, you know, almost 10 years, maybe maybe more than 10 years. And it mostly worked, kind of fell apart after Crisis in a lot of series, but mostly it, it hung together pretty well. You got a nice little contained universe there. They tried it in the movies and it, you know, it bombed spectacularly, but now they've got James Gunn picking up the ball and he's, you know, probably going to be knocking that out of the park. Um, so I, I don't really see why you feel like we need to have this other animated universe when you've got such a unique opportunity here. You've got all these books. And I think DC really excels at something that Marvel hasn't quite caught up with. Whereas Marvel stuff is so tied to continuity. It's so much harder to do out of continuity stories with Marvel characters because continuity is so important to Marvel, but it's so much baked into Marvel from the beginning. Like that's one, that's one of the things that Stanley was doing back in those early days was tying everything together. And he was putting such a strong focus on continuity that hadn't been in comics before. So with Marvel, it's harder to do that. It makes sense for Marvel to more to have like an MCU type thing because that's always been Marvel's thing. But for DC, it can go both ways. Like you've got the regular continuity stuff, but DC has so many great stories that are not set in any specific continuity and stories that are definitive for a lot of these characters. The Long Halloween, All-Star Superman, you know, all these different stories that are just like kind of timeless versions of these characters. You've got such a great opportunity to tell those stories, right? Instead of I'm I'm far less interested in seeing, you know, another animated universe with everyone having the same house style and much more interested in seeing like why don't you guys do Kingdom Come, right? Why don't yeah. you guys, you know, try something different instead of taking these store these classic stories and trying to cut them up and make them fit into a shared universe where they don't really fit. Yeah. I think that if I had to pick stories that I think could be like really good touch points for trying to do one of these shared universes, well, I guess really what I'd rather see is another attempt at, at an animated series that doesn't feel necessarily confined to any one corner of the DC mm-hmm. universe. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to see a version that, you know, maybe starts with JLA year one and shows us, the characters outside of the big three and gives us a reason to care about them. And, you know, you now live in a world where black Canary, the flash green, green lantern, a little bit less so, but Mm. um, green lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, these characters have big enough followings that getting them together again in an animated form, you don't have, people aren't going to immediately ask, well, where, where's Batman? Where's Superman? Mm. Where's wonder woman? Um, they'd be content knowing, okay, they are existing in this world and they're just not on this team right now. Right. And you use that as your entry into the larger world. Um, as, as they get established, you start to explore these other corners. And then 
in that same format, almost in like an anthology sense, tell stories like Superman Birthright, The mm. Long Halloween, um, you know, dig into the characters from that kind of perspective. And and you can spend time in this shared world, but it doesn't have to be at the snail's pace of these mm. movies. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be in these, you know, arbitrary 80 minute kind of segments it can be you know if a story takes x number you know four episodes it takes four if it takes Uh six it takes six um and certainly you could then repackage them as individual movies or whatever but Mm -hmm. i would love to see that living breathing uh television universe again and if they wanted to do something truer to the comics i'm all for it but i i don't think there's a reason to just necessarily try to replicate what you're doing on the big screen in Mm -hmm. in a film sense only it's animated that mm-hmm. to me is re- is redundant especially if you're not going to lean into what makes the books unique which is often the artist's specific renditions of these characters and worlds right yeah i think that would be that would be so good it would be or even you know do an animated crisis because you're very limited what you could do on tv with a tv budget and though they did a pretty good job with what they had i mean it i still thought caught to myself I'm like man how awesome would it be to see like an animated three-hour, four-hour Christ on Infinite Earths movie where you're not limited by how many characters you can have on screen. You're not limited by those kind of constraints. Like, it would be so amazing to see what they did with something like that. Or, I mean, geez, adapt the Morrison JLA. That would be, again, it's it'd be expensive as hell to do those stories in live action, but you could easily fit those into an animated series and really do those stories justice. Okay, sorry about that. We're getting some uh, background noise here. We're about to wrap up anyway. Uh, sorry, you were about to say something? No problem. Uh, I was going to say that I would love an, an animated version of, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths or even drawing elements from, say, Infinite Crisis and using that as like a, a big set piece, big crossover to get people on board. And then doing something like 52 where you're going to go, okay, you these big characters exist in this world. Their influence is felt. They have stories and careers and and history and and now we're going to dive into some of the corners that don't get that spotlight and we're going to see the world from you know um from 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 a character like black adam's perspective or renee montoya and Mm. booster gold and 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 dig into other elements as branching off points i i think that those stories uh are often as good, if not better, than what's happening in the big books, and and um, just because they don't have those marquee names, they should they should be adapted. And I hope that James Gunn's kind of penchant for for picking up on these kinds of stories uh, lends to those stories getting adapted. Because I never thought we'd get a a Starro uh, big big fully you know no compromised <laughs> adaptation of Starro, and we got it. I never thought we'd get a Peacemaker TV show where which not only would I have actually been interested in, but which I actually would have come off, you know, absolutely loving and think it's like the best DC thing they've ever seen. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, I'm totally, I mean, James Gunn's got this unique talent for bringing some of these smaller characters and, you know, interpreting them in a way, mostly in a way that works. I, I still feel sorry for vigilante fans that they've been screwed over twice, but that's another story. Uh, but, but mostly it's, you know, he's giving these, these, characters that nobody really cares about and he's making that making them into fan favorite characters like whoever thought that people would give two shits about star lord like i i've read you know i've read the abnett landing guardians of the galaxy series and i didn't give a shit about star lord 
Yeah, like I, I hadn't heard of the Guardians before they got adapted to the big screen. I'm, I'm not as deep on the, the comic side mm-hmm. of Marvel, but, um, you know, I saw what James Gunn did and I was like, instantly won me over. Those films are great and fun. And it's great to see those characters cross over with the Avengers and, and really firmly establish the mm-hmm. cosmic quarter of that universe. And so when James Gunn was coming over to do um, the new Suicide Squad, I was on board instantly. I knew that DC was going to very specifically let him let him loose to play with these toys. And, you know, I knew it was going to probably be Harley Quinn was going to be there. She sells tickets. I get it. But then when he's pulling obscure characters like Peacemaker, who as as a long time, especially DC Comics fan, I hadn't even heard of Peacemaker. Yeah. And then you hear the character and you're like, okay, this is going to be kind of a one note joke Mm. performance. John Cena stunt casting. I get what we're doing here. And then he's he's great in the movie but he's phenomenal in the show he really really brings a lot of depth and and not to get on too much of a soapbox about john cena's performance in peacemaker or or james gunn's creative choices but i think peacemaker is a wonderful show for 2022 i think that is a vehicle for people who might not willingly self-identify with that character mm-hmm. to see the the transformation and growth and and active choices he makes to turn away from uh his past and step into something bigger and better and i think people can apply that to their own lives and take from that whatever they they want but i think Mm -hmm. it's it's it is a show that i really hope is is reaching hearts and minds in 2022 the way it really deserves to Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. and the fact that it's a big DC show is crazy. On top of that, well, yeah, I mean, we'd done. I'm not sure if you listened to it, but we did a, a, an episode on on Peacemaker and spent a lot of time talking about John Cena because I was just blown away with how talented that man is and how unexpected I was. Because you know, and I and I said this back then too. You get these actors who, and I'm I'm biased because I remember Suburban Commando, <laughs> right? The all the Hulk Hogan stuff, and where it's like you know when you get a, a wrestler becoming an actor. You know, sometimes you get lucky and you get a Dwayne Johnson where it's a fun performance, but there's not really a whole lot of depth there. And sometimes you get, you know, Hulk Hogan or or Stone Cold Steve Austin, where it's just like, why are you doing this? Um, But then you get guys like Dave Bautista and John Cena, who are just, you know, have so much, such a, a wealth of talent that's just untapped. And I was completely blown away by his performance in that. Um, but anyway, if... If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to that Peacemaker episode. We did like a good two hours about about that series. Um, anyone else who's listening to, if you haven't heard the Peacemaker ones, it, it was an amazing conversation we had with uh, Adam Garcia. Um, so yeah, the last thing I wanted to touch on here is um, kind of like where you would probably rank this in the Batman anime movies. And I'm going to put, I'm going to make it a little bit, maybe a little bit harder on you because I'm going to take Batman Mask of the Phantasm out of the equation because that is... Okay. It's like when you put up, it's like when you're ranking the Superman actors, right? It's obvious Christopher Reeve is going to be at the top. And if you're ranking Batman voice actors, you're going to have Kevin Conroy at the top. So we're taking Mask of the Phantasm out of consideration. You can't pick that one. But out of that, which one, how do you think this ranks in like the the Batman-aided movies? And what which one would you say is like the number one? I think if we're taking Mask of Phantasm off the table, then year one, is the number one for me. I think okay. it's a it's a great adaptation. I think there's not a lot that I would that I would change from that adaptation into a hypothetical live action adaptation of the same mm-hmm. story. I think it I think it does a good job. Um, I think 
for folks who are primed for a a Gordon centric look into Batman's first year, it totally delivers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot. I don't have too many gripes. I love some of the casting there. Yeah. It's very fun. Um, I think it's a if you were to watch that and then roll into Long Halloween, you might be disappointed by some of the stylistic changes, the casting changes, but the the two pieces play nicely together. Mm-hmm. Um, I could take or leave some of the new 52 stuff. I think those adaptations are are fine, but it's one of those things where similar to the new 52 itself in the comics, the choice to do a fresh start and then jump into a very late career Batman story with, with Damien coming aboard and, and this very strange attempt to kind of squeeze parts of the Morrison run into this new 52 mm-hmm. setting. Um, that just to makes me feel like, oh, well, I wish they just had adapted this more directly. I wouldn't have minded a, a Batman RIP story, mm-hmm. getting a Dick Grayson Batman movie, then getting a Bruce and Damien movie like that. Maybe would feel more fun you i think damien as you mentioned is a little too grating of a character Mm -hmm. um so he and i love the character i just don't like him in those adaptations agree you kind of really need to it's it's a make or break um so despite the number of of misgivings i have with long halloween i think i'd rank it probably third third under under the red under the Red Hood is up there. That's that's an example of an adaptation where the changes are all in service of the story. Mm-hmm. Casting issues aside, I think that for me becomes the definitive version of the story. I personally don't care for the Dark Knight Returns, so I just even though it's a great adaptation, mm-hmm. I just rate it lower. I my love for the Long Halloween elevates this less than perfect adaptation above a, a perfect adaptation of a story that I just care less about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought that the changes in Hush were ultimately uninteresting to me. Mm-hmm. And I had I took more issue with those changes uh, as a subversion to the, the original story than I did with um, the changes here. If, we, mm-hmm. if we're going to count Public Enemies, I might bump Public Enemies above Long Halloween because mm-hmm. it's a pretty good adaptation. I think if you're a Batman fan and, and you're like, I don't care about Superman check out public enemies, the comic or the movie Mm -hmm. you you're going to, you're going to see Superman the way Batman sees Superman. And that's a, that's a fun way to, to get into the character. Mm -hmm. But so I would rank that above long Halloween as well. But if that's going to count as, as not exactly a pure Batman movie. No, I I think that that definitely counts because there's so much they did with Batman in that movie. So I would definitely count that, count that one in. Um, I think bump long Halloween. Yeah. I think I would put, I would probably put dark Knight returns as the top one. Um, you know, over time, I do have, and we talked about this when we talked about Dark Knight Returns animated movie, but as time has progressed, I have got a lot of issues with that story. And as much as I still love it, there's still also a lot of issues I have with it. Um, but even all that being said, I do think it is such a perfect distillation of that story. Um, after that, I would probably put um, maybe Under the Red Hood after that. Uh I would probably knock Long Halloween down a few others, though. Like, I would probably put it below um, Public Enemies. I would put it below... Um, I'm just looking at some of the other ones here. Uh, Batman uh, Batman versus TMNT or Batman Soul of the Dragon. I thought those were really interesting looks at that and kind of that idea of, you know, 
you could do anything with this character. So I think I like that those two versions, especially really kind of took that to heart and just kind of swung for the fences. And though I haven't seen the, the Batman 66 movies, I mean, that's another thing where I'm glad that they just like, well, yeah, let's go back to the Adam West Batman and bring him back in animated form. I thought that was a, that was a genius piece of, uh, I, that was a genius move. Yeah. I, I have, I haven't seen versus TMNT. I haven't seen soul of the dragon yet. And I haven't seen the 66 movies. So those could all easily rank past the long mm-hmm. Halloween. Um, and I'm excited to dive in. You know, it's funny though. I know a lot of people have a lot of problems with hush. And I know if you're comparing this one and hush, most people would place the long Halloween above hush. Just talking about the movies, the comics, a different story, but I actually, and I think it's cause I have a lot more problems with hush as a storyline and I'm less tied to that story than I am to long Halloween. And I, I'm more understanding of the changes they made in Hush than I am of the changes they made in Long Halloween. So I think I would put Hush above that. Well, I'd also put, you know, you mentioned year one. I completely forgot to mention that. But yeah, year one would also be very high up there because, and you talked about the casting. I mean, Brian Cranston is Commissioner Gordon. And in a nice piece of ironic casting, Ben McKenzie, who played Gordon on Gotham, you got him playing Batman in that. It's really interesting the, the way that folks have kind of like played more than one role across mm-hmm. different adaptations of Batman. We talked about Jensen Ackles at the beginning, having played both Jason Todd and Batman. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we talked about it with Troy Baker, but he's played both Batman and the Joker yeah. in different adaptations. Um, I think that kind of versatility is, is really fun. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice. Egg. And I think it, it's got to be fun for those actors too, right? Getting the chance, especially someone like Troy Baker, who is like Jensen Ackles, it, it sounds like Jensen Ackles. <laughs> it's not, yeah. he's not that skilled of a voice actor, but someone like Troy Baker, who is very skilled as a voice actor and has very like his, you compare his Batman to his Joker. Maybe if you're listening very closely, you can tell it's the same guy, but it's really hard. <laughs> like he does a really good job of differentiating those guys or like, you know, taking it back to, to Mark Hamill and some of the different roles he's played. You know, the Joker sounds completely different from like, gargoyle on the incredible hulk uh animated series um or yeah so i mean it's it is it's got to be fun for those guys to be able to play around with those different interpretations and see like how can i change my voice to match this character totally all right um frankie this is great having you on uh so uh, tell people where they can find you yeah so i am at frankie the fourth uh, the number four th on twitter i'm at classic american cool on instagram and uh you can see my my writing and, and some of my uh video work and, and generally see what i'm up to at frankiecampsano.com okay well thanks so much for for coming on um anytime you want to come back on more than welcome just let me know and uh if you guys haven't subscribed to the patreon page you know go to patreon.com slash super cinema pod Dollar a month, you can hear our conversation about the Long Halloween comic. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely some interesting ideas that we talked about there. And uh, you can also listen to other um, com- similar conversations I've had on the Patreon show. You can also get these episodes a week in advance. Um, but that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephiles. SuperheroCinephiles.com is the website. And we are Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Superhero Cinephiles, then you'll also love my companion podcast, the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club. All my Patreon subscribers get access to this exclusive podcast where I review superhero comics and graphic novels. Not sure what comics you want to read next or what you should dive into? 
I've got you covered on that. I'll be doing reviews, recommendations, and also talking to you about useful entry points if you're interested in reading some comics but don't know where you should start. Plus, you'll get access to all episodes of the main show a week before everyone else. On all of this, for as little as just a dollar a month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash supercinemapod, and you can sign up at any subscription amount to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.